remember early on in there, meditation students of mine reaching out and just saying like, hey, I'm really having a trouble dealing with the uncertainty, dealing with the discomfort. I don't know what's gonna happen. What do you think is gonna happen? And I had to say over and over again, like, I don't, it doesn't seem like anyone knows right now. And what an interesting opportunity for us to get comfortable with not knowing. Like the idea of being comfortable with uncertainty, being comfortable with things feeling a little groundless. Hey, welcome back to another episode of What to Faith. I am seriously excited for all the listeners to this episode. Uh, this is somebody that I've really been wanting to have on for probably since we about started the podcast that we had, we're having Lodro Rinsler on. Um, and he is just, I mean, doing the best job I think that somebody can be doing in bringing Buddhist teachings to the modern world. I mean, not only is he very aware and very knowledgeable about mindfulness and meditation, but he actually uh, took monastic training uh, at a temple. And so this is somebody that it's not just, oh, hey, I like meditation because it's cool, but somebody who actually knows their stuff. Um, and is an amazing author. I mean, his books, Walk Like a Buddha and The Buddha Walks Into the Office have both received awards. Um, and his, especially the book, The Buddha Walks Into the Office and the book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, I just thought were always caught my eye. The bookstore are just are amazing books. And then his new book also, um, Take Back Your Mind, uh, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. I mean, it's just perfect for the past, I mean, it's going on two years now of just what we've been dealing with in our day-to-day life. Um, I mean, seriously, it's an amazing conversation. Allison and I enjoyed it so much, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. So hope you all enjoy. Thank you I mean, so much for being willing to come onto the podcast. I mean, looking at your your books and um, your work, I think it's it's great the balance you've had of modernizing or not modernized, but bringing meditation and mindfulness and Buddhist practice into the modern world. I, I'm curious for you how what, how that really started for you. How, how did the meditation and um, where did that journey begin? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, thank you for saying that because I, I do feel like the life of the work that I'm doing in this lifetime seems to be based in making these things really accessible to our modern world. And it is, it does sometimes feel a bit of like a translation act of taking things that have been around for 2,600 years in the Buddhist tradition and saying, okay, what does that look like in our current context? How does this play out for people? You know, I mean, the Buddha never could have predicted social media, for example, or the internet. Like how does any of these principles that are still applicable actually be brought into our modern world? So thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I, I started in on Buddhism itself a million years ago. So I was raised Buddhist, uh, which is a little bit unique, I suppose. I sometimes forget that, you know, I am second generation Western Buddhist. So my parents studied Tibetan Buddhism and then I came along and it was always meditation and the Buddhist teachings were just a part of our life. And I started meditating as a result at a young age, not because anyone particularly pushed me into it, but just because that was what was in the air in my, where I lived. And then later on in my preteens, I started doing like weekend meditation retreats and then kept going and doing longer retreats into my teens where I, it sounds really dramatic. I didn't, it's not that dramatic. It's very common for people to do temporary ordination in the monasteries, but I like to joke that I ran off to the monastery, but it was, you know, it lasted, you know, it was a long time for a 17 year old, but it was not long in the time <laughs> calendar year. So I spent some time there in uh, this place called Gempo Abbey in Nova Scotia and a, um, 
you know, shaved my head, took the robes, the whole nine yards. And that's really, it was, I always mention this because it was this pivotal moment where it was no longer my parents' thing. It was something that I was doing. And they had never done this thing, this monastic shave the head route. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I guess this is something I'm doing because I want to do it. And I went straight from that a year later to college. And to answer your question more directly, I think that's really where I started to notice, oh, all of this sort of nice traditional Buddhist stuff, it's butting up against me being a freshman. I joke that there were a lot of mindful keg stands back then, which is a bit of an oxymoron. But you know, I was trying to figure out, like, how do I go through my late teens, early 20s and also balance these very traditional things? And that's where the initial like run ins in terms of my own personal relationship with these things began to be explored. Yeah, I think that I mean, for me, looking at your work, I'm kind of glad you went through that <laughs> just because I think what I've I why especially Buddhism nowadays hits so many weird notes of there's like multiple sides to it and two of the main ones is we have the religion and we have the monks and that beautiful side to it and then you get into the modern area and then you also get to the like the fad side where it's just like well it's cool to meditate you know (laughs) i'm curious how you found the balance between those it is very well put i think there's mercifully a middle way (laughs) between these two things where there is sort of the very traditional monastic side, side that has been, for example, coming out of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, these many of these monasteries have been around for a thousand plus years. And I would say more recently, although I suppose any time in the last 50 years in the West, we are seeing a lot of people who might have heard something about these teachings, and then they sort of put it through their filter, their personal filter, and then they sort of make it their own in a way that actually is not in line. It's the sort of the definition of appropriation, I suppose, um, and try and spew it out like they made it up. And that's, yeah, it's sort of offensive. Uh, I don't like seeing it out there. But it's also, I remember a long time ago, I was running this sort of online conference. I didn't forget who was at sort of brought me on to lead it, but I was interviewing David Gellis, who's a New York Times reporter. He had written a book at the time called Mindful Work, which covered meditation going into the workplace. And I was like, okay, a lot of the people that must be running this are BS. Like they just want to make money. They just want to do this thing. And I asked him, I was like, you know, do you think all of these people really know what they're doing in terms of like representing these teachings, saying where they're from, so on and so forth. And he looked me square in the eyes and I'll never forget, he just says, Lodro, the Dharma takes care of itself. Meaning the Buddhist teachings have been around for a very long time and they're much more resilient than we might think. And for people who are actually going to be interested in these things, they're going to find the genuine article. They'll go out and they'll get it. And they know, like we have BS, you know, radars ourselves. We know when something's authentic. We know when someone's sort of trying to be trendy or cool without that level of authenticity. So I think he's right, actually. I've, I've sort of, that's always stayed with me. I mean, that conversation was probably a good 10 years ago now. And it's an interesting one where I do think that there is something in the middle that's being figured out here in the West of people who are like, I want to root myself in this very genuine thousands years old tradition. And I want to be able to talk to people and you know post things on Instagram or do a YouTube channel or whatever, so I can make it really accessible to people and meet them where they are. Last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, Buddhism's been around for 2,600 years. It's traveled from India to Tibet and became Tibetan Buddhism, India to China and became Zen. You know, like there's all these versions of it going and meeting a culture. And those things took hundreds of years. And if we look at Buddhism coming to America, where I am, where you are, 
it hasn't even been 100 in terms of the way that we often think of sort of westernized Buddhism. There have obviously been Chinese Buddhists in California and elsewhere who had established temples early on and sort of within their communities continued their traditions. But in terms of the way that we think of like meditation retreats and things like that, like that is a very baby thing in the grand scheme of what will hopefully be several thousand year tradition. Yeah. And from my experience, what I think is an interesting silver lining, right, is that there are people who kind of start out on that fad side of mindfulness meditation and then receive those benefits and then kind of dive deeper into the spiritual. And I think for a lot of people too, just, you know, we're in the West, we're so much more ingrained with Western religion, you know, of there's a lot of people leaving Christianity or, you know, kind of more of these fundamentalist spaces. And so I think that meditation has provided like a totally different, it feels like a totally different way of engaging with the spiritual. And so that that's kind of at least from my experience where I've seen it, right? Where like some people enter in through general mindfulness, even some of the self-help stuff. Uh, I think Dan Harris, who wrote 10% Happier, like his approach is very kind of similar to that. But I at least see that kind of in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, actually, Dan's a friend and he's a classic example of someone who I mean, in, in that wonderful book, 10% Happier, he went around and he was like, I'm going to give this a try. I'm going to give that a try. And he did what I think many of us should do, which is dabble a little bit, see what's out there, see what we resonate with. And he has an excellent BS radar and was able to acknowledge like, oh, there's something genuine within. He went to an Insight Meditation Society retreat, which is, you know, coming out of Theravada Buddhism. And, you know, at this point, some of the teachers are heavily influenced by Tibetan Buddhism as well. Um and he said, okay, this is the jam. Like, this is me working with my own mind in a way that feels supported. And I think that's sort of the thing for many of us, as you said, who go from either conservative traditions that we're leaving or weren't raised with a particular tradition and we're seeking something genuine to us. It's important that we dip our toes into the water and see what feels like home, both in terms of the teachings, but also in the practices, but also the teachers, like, do we feel like the teachers speak to us? Do we share the same language? Is what they're saying resonate with us? And then even the community. And I think that's a very hard one for many people. You know, there's a time I ran a uh, network of meditation studios that I co-founded 2016. I think we opened our doors and the pandemic unfortunately closed all of those doors but that for many years, Mindful was what it was called, MNDFL, served as this really interesting space where we hosted teachers from a wide variety of traditions, all of these various traditions of Buddhism, but also we had a Jewish meditation teacher, we had a Kundalini meditation teacher, we had Vedic meditation teachers, all sorts of things like that. And we had this great mix, but the thing that we never could have predicted that ultimately made that such a wonderful, successful space and kept people coming back was the community that there is sort of a kind and laid back community of similar spiritual seekers who are trying to find their groove and we're trying out various genuine traditions in the hopes of doing that. And it, it was a very vibrant community, very kind community, very diverse community. And I think that's an interesting thing that we don't always think about. It's like, yes, the teachings, the practices, but also the teachers in the community really help keep us rooted in the consistency of following those things. Yeah, that is really awesome. I mean, I think from my experience too, that's been, I think, really cool with the Western Buddhism and uh, meditation 
practice with so many people exploring and you kind of get to go on this adventure with so many people. And, and even from my experience too, with I've seen it really help myself and other people with getting out of a place of spiritual abuse, especially from Western religion. It's then now this whole new lens to look at spirituality. And I, for you and from your experience, have you seen much of that, much of people who have just like the, the Bible and Christianity hasn't worked out for them and they, but they're still spiritually hungry for some sort of practice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this also helps me remember how, why was I starting to talk about mindful the, the studios? Part of it was we were, we were covered by a, um, gosh, I, I hope I'm not doing a disservice. I guess it was, it was a CBS special on spiritual, but not religious communities. And it was exactly what you're talking about where they were seeing this giant trend of people who were leaving sort of maybe mainstream churches. And then in some cases, places that they felt clashed with their, who they were or clashed with their own unique belief system or whatever it may be, there was no longer a home for them in that, whether it was abusive or conservative or whatever it was, and that they were now looking for something. And I think that's something in our Western world I mean, for some people, it's going to end up being CrossFit. You know, it's going to be like, you know, I'm going to go there because they know my name and their community. For some people, it's going to be a bar. For some, you know, it's like that people are looking for community at this point. They're looking for supported, like-minded individuals. But hopefully those people aren't so scarred that they might actually want to pursue some form of spirituality. And what that ends up leading to often does feel like we get we get a lot of people who are like, Buddhism is more a way of life than a religion, right? And the answer is yes. It's like, I, I prefer the term religious tradition because I think there is some sort of traditional stuff that's been passed down, but it's a living, breathing organism based on the culture that it's meeting and the time that they're in. So for example, we have Buddhism, as I said before, going from India to Tibet. The thing is, you know, this is a very long time ago, they were meeting a nature-based religion and they weren't going to subjugate these people and say, no, now you believe what we believe. That's not really what the Buddhists do. So they said, well, what if we incorporated some of these deities into this idea? And frankly, these deities are just emanations of your own wakeful energy, but we can we can put them on paintings. We can embody them in different ways. Like they worked within that tradition and culture and they sort of met each other and they, they adapted together. And to, that's why Tibetan Buddhism looks very different than Zen Buddhism, where it met a completely different culture. So same thing here, where we're finding like we're co-creating essentially what Buddhism in the West looks like. We are like people who are showing up at a meditation studio, a Buddhist center, any of these sorts of things, they may not think about it, but they are actively co-creating what Buddhism in the West will be. It is up to each of us as sort of early pioneers within this to begin to think what values do we actually want from our Western society to take place? Are there things that have messed us up? Some capitalistic values, some patriarchal values, whatever it might be, that we don't actually want to reify within this tradition, even though we may have been raised within it. Can we start to work with our own minds and hearts and see these habitual ingrained tendencies, give them up in order to become wiser, better beings? And can that be what subsists in the future of this tradition? So I think it's, anyway, it's a very interesting question that you are bringing up. I don't often rant and rave about the, you know, brand new form of Buddhism in America, but it, we are at an interesting time where we get to decide what does it look like going forward? Not from an egoic perspective of I'm the lineage holder that's going to be, no, it's like, co, it's like as a society, people who are interested in meditation, people who may come from 
other traditions or other uh, religious backgrounds that have been hurt and don't want to keep reifying things that they've seen not work, there's other ways that we can co-create something that moves forward in a better way. Yeah, I love that. That's so fascinating. It just, I don't know how, and that's one thing I think is very uh, amazing and beautiful about Buddhism and Buddhist tradition, right? Of like that freedom to kind of, you know, shape as a community what that's going to look like, right? And I think there is, I think it leaves more room for that spiritual fluidity and spiritual freedom. Um, so I don't know. I just think that's beautiful about Buddhism. Do you have a... Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's... Well, I think it's so cool about that is I think Buddhism's almost kind of led the way for more religions to realize that they need to, like, that they only survive by becoming applicable for modern day and for our modern life. And I, and I think the Buddhism finding its way to the West and people finding it and that that whole growth is also starting to help other religions start to find that same kind of growth yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) i I think that's sort of where i'm at with this whole thing it's like we'll see what happens totally and it could go horribly wrong as an experiment we don't know but (laughs) hopefully it won't I'd love to dive a bit more into your latest book which i feel like came out very timely after the 2020 year and continues uh, on as we continue in the pandemic. Um, so I'd love just to know, you know, what was your inspiration for writing your new book and kind of giving listeners a, a brief breakdown? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I uh, left to my own devices. I am, will never promote anything of myself. So <laughs> glad that you brought it up. So the new book is called Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. And it is a book on anxiety and how we can actually work with the mind. Yes, through meditation and meditations. I'll say there's a couple of different ones in the book, but also like on the spot day-to-day activities that we can start to interrupt the anxiety producing stories that keep us locked in pain. So why, why would I do that? <laughs> you sort of nailed it, that it is particularly anxious time for many of us. Um, to backtrack for a minute, you know, I've been teaching meditation now for 20 years. So I went to university and after starting to try and form a little meditation group and bring in a bunch of teachers from all over the surrounding area, at some point they got sick of me demanding that they commute. And they were like, listen, you've done prerequisites for a teacher training, go do a teacher training. So I was sort of thrust into this, not even like world meditation teacher, but sort of like mindfulness instructor, like very baby version of just someone who knew how to give mindfulness instruction, uh, but from a young age. And it's been interesting to watch the world shift and change. And maybe it's just my perspective, but I do feel like in recent years, we have grown to the point of increased anxiety. And it's, yes, 24-hour news cycle in the way that there wasn't 20 years ago. Um, Yes, it's the fact that it seems like the world is not just figuratively, but literally on fire more often than not. Like, I don't know when we got used to the idea of wildfire season or hurricane season, but like, that's just a thing that we have now. It's like, that's sort of absurd that that's just a new thing that is a regular thing, but also just like very basic stuff. Well, it used to be when my father would come home from work, if there's an emergency, they had to call the landline and reach him after five. And otherwise he would see them the next day. And these days, of course, there's, if even something very minor happens, you might get a text, an email, a phone call. There's like any number of ways for someone to reach you, even if you're not at your home. So it does feel like we are sort of on 
more. We're sort of expected to be on. And that is causing us a lot of stress that many of us are staring at our phone from the moment we wake up to the moment that we go to bed, maybe even answering emails, maybe even, you know, it's like where there's never any time for relaxation and space baked into our current existence. Or another version would be, you know, I don't know, it feels like, like a back when not you, I was a young kid or something like that. But, you know, when I first moved to New York, when I was, you know, 25 or something like that, I don't think I had an iPhone yet. So what I ended up doing is like, you know, of course I would have either a magazine or something like that. And if I didn't have that, then I would just sit on the subway, you know, as I would sort of shuttle back and forth and just stare into space, you know, or meditate or something, you know? And these days you get onto the same subway car and even though the car itself has not been updated, everyone in it is now like staring at their phone. We don't have time that is unstructured, that is just open and spacious. We've sort of been able to fill it either because that's what's expected of us or because that's what our mind does. It doesn't like to be bored. It doesn't like to be on its own. It wants distraction. So we are living as a result of all this in a time that is incredibly stressful, incredibly anxiety producing. And then you throw in all of the things that we as a nation are now waking up to here in in America in terms of, I mentioned patriarchy before, but of course, deep racial issues, deep political divides, any number of things. We are now starting to look at that and that's important and good, but it's also deeply painful for so many people. So we're not good at talking about pain. We're not good at doing this and it's causing so much anxiety in the midst of that. So there's 10,000 reasons why a book on anxiety might be well-timed at this point. But as you noted, it came out right in the top of 2021 where, you know, we're still, I guess we still are in the midst of this pandemic. And I remember early on in there, meditation students of mine reaching out and just saying like, hey, I'm really having a trouble dealing with the uncertainty, dealing with the discomfort. I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? And I had to say over and over again, like, it doesn't seem like anyone knows right now. And what an interesting opportunity for us to get comfortable with not knowing. Like the idea of being comfortable with uncertainty, being comfortable with things feeling a little groundless. And that's what meditation helps us do. It helps us hold our seat in the midst of really groundless times to help us feel grounded and um, stable, steadfast, even maybe some sense of equanimity in the midst of chaos. So it's a very long answer to a very simple, well-put question. But I, I think, you know, because there's so many versions of anxiety that are rising as a society today, we do need better tools and or applying old tools, I should say, in better ways to bring our mind back to some state of relaxation on a regular basis. I don't think many people realize that we can work with the mind. We can't like the choices we make, no one holds us in anxiety, but us, if you get an email from a boss and they say, Hey, I need you to get this project done by Friday. That causes you a lot of stress or anxiety. Maybe at some point, you know, the initial email startles the system, but who's holding you in the state of what if this happens? What if that happens? What if I don't do it? Every time up until Friday, if you're holding yourself in a state of anxiety, it's you that's doing it. So there's something about this new book, Take Back Your Mind, that's just like, here's how we give ourselves permission to relax, to not hold ourselves in that state of constant stress, to bring the mind back in skillful ways to enjoy this present moment and what's some of the goodness that's happening right in front of us. Yeah, that is so important. That just that hit me because I, I I've been actually thinking about that so much 
this is like i mean this is perfect like this last week of like just like digital addiction you know and we the the whole buddhist concept of like how great it is to be a human right now is like that's amazing and like so it's it's like you know if you like get this like really nice dinner and then you just like plow through it you know you just like eat it all and like it's gone in a few seconds you didn't savor it you know and then it's like i feel like the meditation is like taking that time to savor like each bite um and i yeah yeah and i think that's actually a great example i mean what what could people do who are listening to this and they're like i you know yes maybe i'll check out the book but that's a great example of just slowing down and tasting the first three bites of your meal even that starts to turn the mind towards enjoying the present moment might feel a little forced at times but there's something like, oh, in this activity, I'm just going to show up for this thing. Maybe it's the shower that you take every day. Maybe it's brushing your teeth. Maybe, but something, walking the dog. But it's just taking these times and saying, I'm going to give myself a break from the anxiety-producing stories and just say, I'm going to enjoy this particular moment. And of course, to state the obvious, meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation, trains the mind to do that more authentically <laughs> and more naturally. What we're doing there is we're, taking a relaxed but uplifted posture. We're noticing how we're breathing. We don't have to change the breath at all. We're always breathing. It's actually a great anchor for meditation because we don't have to do anything. It's just there. So we feel however we're breathing. And then when we get distracted by any of these sorts of thoughts, we bring the mind back to the breath. It's that simple. It's not always easy, but it's a very simple technique. But what we're doing there is we're saying, oh, there's an anxiety-producing thought. I'm choosing not to chase after it. I'm going to come back to the breath because that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, there's another one. I'm going to choose to come back to the breath. And every time we do that, we are rewiring the brain. We're creating new neural pathways that actually say, oh, I don't have to go down the rabbit hole every thought that comes up. So that when you are at dinner and you're with friends or it's a beautiful meal or whatever, you just taste the meal because you've been training the mind to be present. And then you might get distracted. You say, oh no, I actually want to be here. <laughs> and you come back because you've been training that muscle in the same way that we train the muscles when we learn a new musical instrument, or we train the muscles when we learn a new physical discipline. Same thing, only it's mental. I was just going to ask um, if, you know, you covered in your book, because I think one of the biggest, you know, anxiety, uh, I guess, triggers over this past year too has also just been people getting used to solitude, right? Not being around other people and not, you know, spending that hour commute to work. Um, I would love just to know, you know, hear more of your thoughts. And if you did cover that kind of in the book of how we can not just live in the the present moment, but also just be comfortable uh, with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think you're right that there has been there's there's been a lot of time of people being in solitude now there's a lot of art that's actually coming about of like people's experience of that which i think is sort of wonderful and profound but even the example i gave earlier like you're on the subway you're surrounded by people but you're sort of also with yourself and you have to deal with your own mind if you don't if your phone's dead and you forgot a magazine like you're there with yourself there's this old teaching from the tibetan buddhist teacher chogyam trungpa rinpoche where he talks about two types of boredoms hot boredom and cool boredom Cool boredom is the sense of like, there's space in your life, there's nothing going on, and you're actually totally okay with it. It's, you're cool with it. It's just nice and it's easy to be with yourself. And the more we meditate, the more we just sort of befriend ourselves. Because what happens when we acknowledge that thought? 
there's two ways it can go. One, we drift off and we're like, oh my God, you jerk. Why are you like this? You're always thinking like this. Oh, you're so bad at this. Now you're thinking about how you're bad at it and you're just perfect. And that is us perpetuating self-aggression and sort of not giving ourselves a lot of kindness or space. The alternative is that we acknowledge a thought and we say, oh, okay, not a big deal. We come back to the breath. We give ourselves some kind friendliness, some real unconditional love, for lack of a better word, some acceptance. And we come back to the breath. And thus, we're training the mind not just to be present, but also to be really kind to ourselves. That we're actually okay to be with ourselves. The more we learn that, the more we're actually learning cool boredom. And this is in distinction to hot boredom, which is the sense of there's space and we need to like fidget and do something like we can't do, we can't just be with ourselves we have to do something we, we have to turn on netflix we have to go on tinder we have to buy new shoes we have to dot 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 because we're we can't actually befriend ourselves at all so i think meditation helps us with enter that space of cool boredom of just getting to like befriend ourselves a little bit one of my old old books those old books i don't know what did it come out 2014 I think that's right, was how to love yourself and sometimes other people. And it was co-written by a friend who's actually from coming out of the Christian theological tradition, Megan Watterson. And she and I collaborated on this sort of two perspectives on this idea of like actually just befriending ourselves and how, in my case, meditation really can help us get to know ourselves better. And the more time we spend in this state of cool boredom or however we want to refer to it, the more we, we actually realize that we are inherently whole, complete good as is, that we're not some sort of basically messed up monster. Yes, we make mistakes. Like Lord knows I have. Um, yes, we act from confusion. I certainly have. But the idea is that that is not fundamentally who we are. Coming out of the Buddhist tradition slash, I think, just basic human experience, that when we are meditating and we're just breathing and we're just relaxing into this moment, we say, oh, this is okay. I'm okay in this moment. And what we're realizing there is like, maybe I'm fundamentally okay, but I'm not constantly chasing after what if this happens, what if that happens, or what I really want is blank. And if that doesn't go my way, then my life is ruined. When we let go of that sort of thinking, we're like, oh, basically underneath all of that, fundamentally, inherently, innately, I'm good. I'm whole, complete. That's huge for so many of us to come back to what you were talking about before of like, maybe coming from a Christian tradition, some of them emphasize this idea of like original sin or you sort of, we start off in, that, in need of being redeemed. And it, this is 180 degrees different where it's really a sense of what if we came at this from the perspective of we're fundamentally good and whole. And yes, we are confused about that at times. And yes, that leads us to act in painful ways for ourselves and others. But that's not actually who we are those things, who we are is actually whole. It's complete. It's good. It's a really different mindset. And it's actually sort of liberating to at least experiment with and ideally discover through something as fundamental as meditation. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that is really, I feel like so important. I think it's so easy to lose that, um, especially with like exercise. If you stop exercising for a little bit and then it's, oh man, I getting up the stairs is taking a few extra breaths this time around. Um, I've noticed that with meditation where that can happen too, where you know, you're at that, you have that kind of peace of mind, but then you fall off the practice and, um, it gets a little, then you start getting into that hot boredom. So I I'd be, I'd love to learn more about kind of your recommendations for maintaining and, and building like a steady meditation practice. Totally. Yeah. Um, that is a good question and it seems so silly to talk about meditation 
theoretical way when I, I mean, I guess I did give the entirety of the mindfulness instructions already that we would just follow the body breathing. And when we get distracted, we come back. Cool. Sounds simple enough. Often what happens though, when people sit down to meditate is that they end up feeling like there's a waterfall of thoughts, just one after another, after another, after another. And as we were talking about just a moment or two ago, they end up thinking, oh, this must mean I'm bad at it. Everyone else in this room or everyone else I know can sit quietly and I'm the one that's feeling fidgety all of a sudden. I'm the one who can't stay with the breath. So it's very helpful, first of all, to know that like this is the basic human experience. We always have this like barrage of thoughts. We just don't often pay attention to it. So this is where many people start off and they often get frustrated, which is why it's helpful to have some parameters around like how do we keep consistent about this? One of the frustrating things about being a meditation teacher is that a lot of people have an idea that what they should be able to do is just sit down once and walk away feeling, if not fully enlightened, at least 100% peaceful. Um, And that should last them one to 10 days. And that's not really the way it works. It's not like a massage that you sort of just walk out feeling much more relaxed than you came in. Often it's like, oh, look at me. I have to like grapple with my own mind and all the thoughts and feels a little chaotic and so on and so forth. So the frustrating part here is that like, I think people have um, been sold unreal expectations of what meditation is because really what it is, it's a training as we talked about before. And like any training, shy of a Rocky sequence is gonna take time. And in the same way that we would learn a new language at first, it's very frustrating, we can't speak any of it. But like we start to learn some basic vocab, we learn basic sentences and gradually we're speaking fluently. We didn't even know how we got there. The same thing happens as we, you know, chase the book title, take back our mind. we actually start to reclaim our mind from some of the anxiety producing thoughts and bring ourselves back to a state of peace. So to actually answer your question, I would say consistency is a big part of building that uh, training over time. And there's four types of consistency I'll mention. The first being a consistent amount of time. You don't have to start with an hour a day or anything like that. I think even 10 minutes a day is a really good place to start. So setting a timer, it can be on your phone. It can be, um, although maybe put your phone on airplane mode. It can be a kitchen timer, it can be any number of things, but something that's like, you don't have to look at your watch every minute and say, oh, is this over yet? Because there's going to be days that we're like, it's three minutes in, this isn't working, we wanna jump up and run through the wall like a cartoon. And that's not what we should do. We should just be with our mind for 10 minutes. Other days, maybe the next day, it feels totally peaceful. And then we're like, oh, maybe I should do more. And oddly enough, just gonna say, get up after those 10 minutes because we judge ourselves in so many areas of our life. It'd be great if we could just let meditation be a judgment-free zone. Just be like 10 minutes of meditation is 10 minutes of meditation, whether my mind is wild or calm in a given day, it's just 10 minutes. So that's the first type of consistency of four, consistent amount of time. Second one that I'll mention is consistent time of day because many of us convince ourselves that we're so effing busy that we don't have the time. We'll say, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And then later becomes the next day. So finding a routine that you can build it into, for me, it's like I get up, I have coffee with my wife and she takes out the dog and I come in here and I meditate. And it's just sort of part of the routine, you know? And it's just built into everything else that I'm already doing in the same way that I will also brush my teeth in the morning. I will not mention it because it's just part of the routine. Why would I even think to mention it? It's like that. 
So if it's not your morning routine, maybe it's your coming home from work routine, your going to bed routine, anything is fine. It's not like that you have to hit this particular time of day, but something that you know you can sort of bank on is going to happen. The third type of consistency, in addition to amount of time and time of day, would be environment. And as I mentioned, I come in here, I have this chair right behind the screen is where I meditate and it's there waiting for me. It's not like I do a lot of entertaining in my office. So this is just the meditation chair. So it's like, it's not something fancy. There's no shrine. There's no, it's not a separate room than my office. It is part of the office. And yet, because there's a dedicated space, I just go right there and it's waiting for me. And I plop down and I'm good. To have that consistent environment can be really helpful. Maybe it does mean for some people getting a cushion, getting an incense burner or a statue or an image of someone you admire or a candle, something, but something that marks like this is where I go to meditate. Because if it's going to take us 10 minutes to set that up and we only had 10 minutes to begin with, we're not going to do it. Last one I'll say is consistent pacing. And this is, there's so much great science around the benefits of meditation these days. Yes, it's been around 2,600 years, but like Harvard and, you know, university, MIT and like other universities have come in and said, yeah, but it's also like, Here's all the ways that it reduces stress officially. Cool, fine. One of the weird parts of it is that a lot of positive, positive habit formation research shows that after 11 days, these things start to become habit forming in, a, in the brain. Meaning if we meditated for 11 days in a row at 10 minutes a day, it's like right around two hours. This is not a major time commitment. If we did that all of a sudden on day 12, it would feel pretty natural to get up and go do the thing. Maybe up until that point, you might feel a little awkward. But after that, it starts to become a habit form. After 21 days, supposedly, it is a fully formed habit. So we sort of just need to keep consistent enough to get there, which is probably the most challenging part for a lot of people. Anyway, those are my sort of four forms of consistency. But I think that really does help people launch into a practice. And once we've gotten to that point, it is a positive thing that will change your life forever. It's just getting there in the initial beginning stage. Yeah. And I think so much too, of just like building a spiritual practice is sticking with it. You know, like I had a conversation one time with someone where they're like, well, I meditated for three minutes yesterday and I like, don't feel any better, (laughs) you know? And so I, I think that that is also, you know, a huge thing with just like habit building is just sticking with it just long enough so that you do feel that benefit. You know, and even if you did like a 10 minute meditation, even if, you know, you've got, like you mentioned that waterfall of thoughts, I think there is something, you know, you can tell that your heart rate usually slows down. Like there are some, I feel like immediate benefits of meditation, but I think to, to build that habit, you really have to stick with it for a bit. Yeah. And thank you for saying that because I, I think it's sort of shocking to a lot of people. It's like, oh, but there's other things I can do, like take a warm bath and I feel totally relaxed, which is great. And I think, you know, there are great things to relax us, but to actually, it's not a great analogy, but Sometimes it feels a little bit like treating the symptoms versus the disease. If we are the sort of person that identifies as an anxious person or a stressed out or an overwhelmed person, to take a warm bath helps us for that period we're in the bath. But then we get out of the bath and we're like, oh my gosh, my mind is still running a mile, 100 miles an hour. Meditation, it takes some time to get in there, as you were saying, but that training, once we get going, it allows us in our day-to-day life to say, oh, there's that stressful thought again. I don't have to chase it. I can do something else. I can actually come back to relaxation in my post-meditation experience. So even if it feels a little bit like hard work at first, the long-term benefits are just so wonderful because it's like we are treating the disease itself, the disease being that anxious mind. 
Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree. And I'm, I'm curious too, because some of the, the topics in your books that I think are super valuable is when it talks about kind of the benefits of mindfulness in like the workplace and in our, our secular life. Um, and, and when we have that practice, how would you say that really can benefit us? Yeah, so I made sort of casual reference to some of the research that's come out. And I think that, you know, with all these studies week after week, it seems, it says, hey, if you meditate for a little bit every day after a period of, they often will say eight weeks is a common study period, apparently, you will have increased creativity. They've linked it to, you know, boosting your immune system, normalizing your sleep patterns, all these wonderful things. But a lot of these things end up falling under that header of stress reduction, because if you are less stressed out all the time, yeah, you have more room for creativity. Yeah, you sleep better at night. You're more relaxed in the body. You're not holding it in constant tension. Yeah, it can heal itself better. <laughs> like it's a, a no-brainer. So I think for you sort of asked personally, I think that's the main thing for me that even just it's interesting watching year over year as sort of calamities do unfold in one's life that I think I used to get bucked more quickly by simple things. And then over time, it's like, oh, that is not something I need to waste mental energy on. At some point, one of the techniques, sort of on the spot techniques I mentioned in the book is that we might get triggered by some sort of story. Let's say someone says, hey, I want to talk to you. What do they want to talk to me about, right? That's such a common one these days. It's a very benign statement, but like, are they mad at me? Did I do something wrong? We start to spin out every possible conversation. After the 50th time we've played this potential conversation out, we might want to ask ourselves, is this helpful? Somehow, like even applying that technique for me has been so revolutionary. No, it's not helpful. Okay, then I'm going to stop doing it. Another variation of that would actually be, is this useful? If it's not useful, maybe it was useful the first time you said, oh, I want to talk to them about blah. After the 50th time, no, it's not useful. Okay, then we have to let it go. But it's like getting gently inquisitive with our experience, with our own mind is so powerful. So I think it's, there's a lot more direct way of saying this would be, there's a lot of ways I've learned to let myself off the hook and not hold myself in stress longer than I need to. I think that's pretty revolutionary for many of us. Yeah. that is, I mean, that is really amazing because I think it's, I, I do, I do find it interesting where you're like, yeah, it is, it is the stress. It's just, you know, having that less stress just allows everything to happen easier. And I'm curious if there's, if that connects also, cause there's that, like, there's that scientific aspect of it, but what would, what would it connect to in like the Buddhist kind of religious teaching of that? Is that, does it have to kind of do with karma or is it, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm curious overall. You know, I mentioned Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche earlier, who was once asked about this very complex notion of karma and he simplified it in a very straightforward way saying everything is predetermined until now. And I love that because it's like, Maybe you're stressed out about your family dynamic and your mother always does this thing and you always get really angry at her about it and dot, 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 right? And that is totally predetermined until now, at which point, having realized all this, you have a choice. You can do that and keep reifying old patterns, which is what karma is, essentially, reifying the same patterns over and over again. Or we can choose to move in a different direction. We can choose to come at this person from a more inquisitive angle, a more compassionate angle to actually monitor our emotions, not get so hooked by them so that we don't become so reactive towards this person. Like all of these things are, you know, meditation helps bring us into that state where we can actually make better choices in the moment 
because we're actually living in the moment. But then we actually find ourselves saying, oh, I can do something other than the way that I've done things in the past that can actually be more skillful. So, I mean, yes, I suppose karma in that sense is, um, you know, a particular Buddhist teaching that, you know, it's coming out of meditation. We just learn to make better decisions because we're more present. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I also feel like, uh, that definitely plays into kind of going back to the workplace thing, right? Like conflict resolution, you know, cause I, if I think about like majority of conflicts, whether it be with coworkers and relationships, family dynamics, right. A lot of the times, you know, those situations are heightened because we like react very quickly. <laughs> and so I, I think that, you know, for me, even though I, I do more, you know, Christian mindfulness things, I, I have seen that, right. When you are uh, practicing, you know, a spiritual ritual like that day in and day out, I think you're just, I don't know if it's just your blood pressure's lo- like not so high or whatever it is, but I, I think people are just less, uh, less quick just into that judgment mode or like that anger mode. And so I also think that's another way that is super helpful is just with like conflict. A hundred percent. It really, it can make such a world of difference to be the person in the room that says, oh my gosh, I noticed this energy is bubbling up and I don't have to buy into it. And that is exact, like it's completely related to what we were saying before around meditation. Oh, look, it's totally predetermined. I'm going to mentally plan this conversation in my head except now I'm actually choosing not to, and I'm coming back to the breath. The breath is a very powerful tool, particularly if we are feeling reactive. You know, I I had a meditation student the other day who is going through a very major betrayal and, you know, a friend really messed him over. And he realized like, my normal thing is to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm noticing that coming up. I notice I want to react in this way. I don't want to text this person back or prove to all these people that he's wrong and I'm right. But maybe I should just come back into the body and breathe a little and actually wait for more, my emotions to settle a bit to make more skillful decisions. This person is 21 years old. Like I wish I had that ability that he has when I was 21. It would have saved me and others a lot of heartbreak if I was just a little bit better at this meditation thing that I was already being invited to instruct people on. Like it, he, he really understands it. It's like, that's the thing. It's, how, it's like, how do we cultivate that awareness? And it's just that he's leaned in in a really powerful way and incorporated these teachings into his life. That is, that is really cool, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Thank, I mean, thank you so much. This has been such a good conversation and just to, I mean, to wrap it up, uh, a little bit, I'd love to hear kind of if you could leave people with one kind of lasting thought uh, from the episode, what would? Yeah. yeah. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate you having me here and mentioning the book and all of that. I hope that this book will help people. And the, I guess a final thought about it would be that if I turned to you two and I said, hey, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either be happy or you can be stressed out. What would you choose? <laughs> happy. <laughs> Definitely happy. Oddly enough, this has a 100% success rate, this particular question. Um, so in this moment, you both just chose happiness. And the entirety of this whole meditation thing is actually learning that we have a choice, that we don't ha- have to be held in a constant state of stress and anxiety, that we can say, oh, I noticed these thoughts. I don't have to buy into them so much. I can choose another way. And if anyone's sort of on the fence about meditation, hopefully that just clarifies the whole thing because it's us just learning to make better choices with our mind. 
And even though there is a bit of a learning curve, um, you know, with proper support and good consistency, it really doesn't take much time for us to start to see that we have the ability to take the mind back and to learn to live a more relaxed and spacious life. And uh, if people would like to connect with you, your work, check out your many books, uh, where would they go to find you? Sure. I mean, I guess at this point, the many books can be found wherever books are sold. I'm always surprised by that. You know, it's when the new book came out, um, you know, it's like, why Walmart is carrying this book? Like, it was very bizarre to me. Um, and, uh, but normally, you know, like bookshop, if you want to shop your indie booksellers and things like that uh bookshop.org but for me uh people can find me at lotrorinsler.com and on instagram at lotrorinsler and facebook at lotrorinsler and so on uh the nice thing about having that sort of names that you get the domain names and the thing about that is like if people email me i mean i was on a um, podcast not that long ago and someone just emailed me yesterday <laughs> being like i have ten thousand questions and you know i took the time i'm happy to there's no team running the lotrorinsler.com it's like you reach out to me through that site and you have genuine questions, I'm happy to give you genuine answers. Um, and it's me writing you back. So anyone can reach out to me through that. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the What the Faith podcast. Music brought to you by Justin Kay. And as always, if you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review for the podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.